Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. In Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of this. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator. It's called, give him the old razzle dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't. Relaciones exteriones equal to. Arriba. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. And I'm Yuval Dorkis Kulboy. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance, 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% that Joel is yet to define. It's going to happen. It's going <laughs> to Where in the world are you, Brian? For the last day i am in stockholm at my offices here because drum roll. Time to... <laughs> exactly just like season two it's time to say goodbye to my workplace it feels very strange it does for all of us sweden's gonna lose uh, a generational talent <laughs> uh it's i have been thinking we've been thinking about i've been thinking about this for a while but um the move is happening i'll be moving to london this move has been incredibly quick it's been a three-week turnaround from me finding out that i was going to get a job to me entering my new apartment in london so in typical arbitration station co-host form we are moving houses and keeping things in the air yeah, well, what's what's it going to mean for the podcast? Not that much, I guess, because we're never in the same room anyway. So it doesn't really matter if you're in London or in Stockholm, because I'm still in Copenhagen or on the move. <laughs> right. I'm, and you're coming to Stockholm, uh, London soon. So maybe there'll be more of those interactions. True, true. You you realize this means you're moving to a bigger pond, which also almost by necessity makes you a smaller fish <laughs> in the process. But I like to think of myself as a koi fish. That fills up the space, oh, wherever placed. Okay, yeah, that remains to be seen, but we bow, have a whole bow, season ahead bow. of us. We'll see what happens. <laughs> <laughs> or I'm swallowed up by a huge shark. That's uh, that's also a possibility. Yeah, that's also an alternative scenario. But I will be starting at Winston & Strawn, which is a new, uh, not a new, it's an American firm um, that has its home base in Chicago. And so I will be part of the London office doing the exact same thing and doing international arbitration. Um, for two lawyers that split their time between London and Geneva, mainly I'll be working with them. Um, and it's weird. It's weird to work for Americans again. So um, <laughs> I like it, but it's it's not uh, it's not Swedes. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'm looking forward to to a lot of fodder for discussion now that you move into different culture again. And also, you're welcome with, for your Swedish citizenship. Yes. You, you got it and then you stayed another month and then you leave the country. <laughs> the thank you note is in the mail to the government. <laughs> and a picture of me in the London by, by Big Ben. Say, thanks for letting me live here. Thank you. And another thank you, uh, we should say, is to our reporter. How do you like that? Bridge. Yeah, beautiful. Keep it moving. Thank you, I reporter, for supporting this season of the Arbitration Station. I should also mention that I, I am back in the I reporter grind because I have no more money uh, for my PhD. I got my last salary a few weeks ago, which also is, of course, a natural deadline. I'm supposed to be done by now, but obviously I'm not. So I'm back on the job market, at least partially, while I've finished the last couple of months on, of the PhD. 
And what I'm doing primarily is some secretary work, which is about to wrap up, but then I reporter work again. So I'm once again a reporter slash editor. You have a duty to say that, actually. So that's very, very nice to see you back in the saddle. Yeah, everything is on the record, Ryan. But, God, um, where in the world are you? I forgot to ask you. Where are you? I'm in Copenhagen um, for another couple of days before I, I go to London. Maybe we should try to record in London. We can maybe yeah. talk about that off air. Yeah. Should we move on uh, to substance of this edition of the arbitration station? Sure. Uh, but first, <laughs> I want to say that we have a conference November 7th. Ah, Sign up. I was hoping you would forget. ICALAA.org. Registration is open. If you're having trouble paying, just send an email to the organizers. Please come. Go ahead, Joel, on the substance of this episode. Okay, first we will talk about a doctrine, Arbitration 101 doctrine. I won't say its name because I want to talk about the name and it would ruin the surprise if we give it up already now. Uh, and I don't want to spoil it, especially not for you. So it, it's a doctrine that has to do with the jurisdiction of the tribunal and who has <laughs> the authority to determine the tribunal's jurisdiction. I have a secret, but I'm not going to tell you what that secret is. It relates to special... <laughs> Listen, exciting things is not just for Netflix. It's also for the arbitration station. Then Joel will take on this second segment as well, interviewing the chair... Uh, the incoming chair of the Commission on Arbitration ADR at the ICC, uh, Miss Carita Valgren-Lingholm. I hope I used Miss right, but that's what it says on the ICC website. Um, we don't know the specific title to be used for her, but there you go. Um, and we have a very interesting discussion with her. She's a friend of the Stockholm community and um, also a great arbitrator, so we were glad to have her on the podcast. Yeah, and I, I'm happy to finally talk a little bit about the ICC, which I wanted to do for quite some time on the podcast, so... She has some insights, having been both on the court and now leading the uh, the commission, which we will return to. And then it's happy fun time. And because you have just interviewed for a new job, we thought we'd talk about interviewing for new jobs. <laughs> exactly. Um, the whole recruiting process, I think, that, but specifically interviews, I think, is um, always done behind closed doors. So no one really can like share notes. Um, and I think there's been a bit of a harmonization between international arbitration practices specifically, um, both you know in the Stockholm market, in the London market, I noticed it, and um, I'm sure it's also that in other jurisdictions. So it will be a fun and interesting topic, I think. Yeah, and I've barely had a job interview in my life, so I'm looking forward to being, <laughs> being so <laughs> lucky. You're so lucky. Um, All right, let's move on. Great. So the arbitration fundamentals we're coming back to. The tribunal, the arbitral tribunal, determines its own jurisdiction. And first of all, before we move into the substance of this doctrine, as always, we have a language focus on this podcast. What do you call this doctrine, Brian, that the tribunal determines its own competence? Competence, competence. You do? Yeah. Ah. That's interesting. That puts you, I think, in the minority. Yeah, I think so. Because I am, as you know, a man of science, so I conducted some science like a year ago. <laughs> I conducted science. I did, I did I some did science. Si <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted to reference this competence, competence doctrine in a footnote in my dissertation, and I, I realized there are different ways of saying it. 
So I wondered, A, which is the best way? And B, are there any meaningful differences mm-hmm. implied in, in which uh, version of the, the uh, phrase, phrase that you use? And I don't know about B. <laughs> I actually never managed to, to answer it, and I won't today either. But uh, A has been settled with scientific precision because I conducted a Twitter poll where I asked uh, Twitter followers which version of the competence, competence doctrine they use. And I got 38 votes, 76% of which voted for competence, competence with German spelling with a K and a Z or a Z in, mm-hmm. the, in the end. Whereas only 24% preferred competence, competence in the ugly American version that you just gave. <laughs> Not showing your cards on that one. <laughs> it wasn't just me, actually. This is settled now once and for all, but there were a lot of strong opinions in the in the commentary. This is what you're missing out on if you're, if you're not on Twitter. There was one Russian lawyer, I think, even called the English version an aberration that should go away. <laughs> and I can only concur. I Listen, it's one of those things like we were talking about during the Latin segment that... I would definitely probably write it in the KZ form. I, even saying the word Z is is new for me. So just give me some time. <laughs> yeah, it, it it feels strange, in particular in a field where we import other or like uh, phrases from other languages more frequently, such as Latin that we talked about before. Having a German transplant doesn't come as naturally, I think, in in an English speaking world. Right. And there's another twist to this, which I completely forgot about and, uh, in my poll, but people commented on, and that's that we have it in French as well, compétence de la compétence, which is a third way of saying it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that is, it seems, uh, uh, primarily in uh, older documents and in like general international law interstate treaties and that type of situations where you have international bodies they use the french version of the doctrine but we might get back to that because we are sticking officially with the german version competence competence which is a term that originates i think from the bundesverfassungsgericht which is brian well done the german supreme court yeah that's right or it's the constitutional court constitutional court yeah which is different. Sorry, all Germans. <laughs> uh, and in in German uh, constitutional law, a judicial authority is said to have competence, competence if it can make a binding decision that no one else can challenge legitimately on whether it itself has the authority to make a binding decision. So it's kind of a circular thing, hence the dual nature of the, the phrase competence, competence. It's the competence to declare that you have competence basically right and in the context of modern arbitration both commercial and investment which is of course our focus competence competence basically translates to the tentative competence of an arbitral tribunal to decide on its competence but and this is a big but subject to the competence of the domestic courts at the place of arbitration so it's not the final say there's always another authority available to to second guess the tribunal's de- determination mm-hmm. which brings me to the thing that you talk about in, in the first five minutes uh, in the lecture on competence competence which you have uh, on every at least international commercial arbitration course and that is the two aspects that are well known of the doctrine and look a bit different in different states we have first the positive aspect and then we have the negative aspect 
the positive aspect is the the power of a tribunal to decide upon its own jurisdiction, as I've already mentioned. Um, but the negative aspect is the interesting one, and that is the policy of the court at the place of arbitration to defer to arbitrators in the determination of their own competence. So the positive is basically just the, the generic, the tribunal has the right to determine whether it has jurisdiction. The negative aspect is whether or not courts respect that and stay away from second guessing. By and large, the positive aspect of the doctrine does not cause a lot of uh, problems, but the second negative aspect is more complicated as it has to do with the extent to which domestic courts stay away from jurisdictional determinations. And here, to no one's surprise, literally no one's surprise, if you've listened to this podcast, approaches differ and uh, the French stand out. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Uh, we'll get back to the French, but the I should say first that the positive aspect, which is regarded by many to be inherent at this point, is often specified in rules. For example, in the Oncetral rules, it's clearly provided that the arbitral tribunal shall have the power to rule on its own jurisdiction, including any objections with respect to the existence or validity of the arbitration agreement. But we wanted to talk about the negative aspects, which is more interesting. And the tricky thing here is that that negative aspect of the competence-competence doctrine restricts parties' recourse to domestic courts. Uh, in other words, competence-competence requires that challenges to a tribunal's jurisdiction must generally be heard, at least initially, by the tribunal, even though there are, in principle, courts competent to determine the tribunal's competence. Got this it. Is where, this is where the French stand out. Okay. Uh, so now we move into the more fun territory, as is always the case. Uh, because uh, our listeners know this, France always stands out uh, and you see the largest preference for arbitration over courts. Because the question here is, of course, how do we balance this if both the tribunal and the court can de decide whether or not the tribunal is competent, uh, who, who has the final word and at what stage of the proceeding. And the French, are, uh, the French example is good to use as one end of the spectrum. Um, certain theorists in France, uh, and I think primary among them in the contemporary literature is Emmanuel Gaillard, argue that national courts are under a duty to defer to a tribunal's own determination of the jurisdiction. <laughs> I mean, I think it's even funny that an arbitration practitioner is saying what the national courts have a duty to, bringing it business. Okay, go ahead. Yeah, but this is, I think, uh, as part of a general theory of, of international arbitration, I think. But the problem is that it's not only France and the negative aspect here. They are governed by different domestic arbitration laws and sometimes even treaties. So there is not one approach. To quote William Rusty Park, an American professor, he's, he, wrote, he writes, This much-vexed principle possesses a chameleon-like quality that changes color according to the national and institutional background of its application. So in French law, a court that is seized with the question of arbitral tribunal jurisdiction must decline jurisdiction. It is actually mm. in, in the French arbitration law. It's not just Emmanuel Gaillard making this up. If you are in France, you cannot as a party go to court when the arbitration is pending at least and try to argue that the arbitral tribunal lacks jurisdiction. However, in Sweden, for example, and some other countries, we actually allow for parties to go to court 
during an arbitration to have Swedish courts issue a declaratory decision on the scope of a tribunal's competence. So this may done be this may be done in parallel with the arbitration, which has led to some confusion. Should, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you. It was milder <laughs> word than what I was going to use. So, um, because we have, we've had a few cases where the tribunal has found that it has jurisdiction, but the Swedish courts have found that they don't, uh, w- which is not satisfactory, really, because then you have two uh, conflicting decisions. And in that scenario, the, the court at the place of arbitration wins, so to say. Right. And this you cannot really do under the model law, for example, or in many other countries, you cannot go to court like this when the arbitration is in full swing you have to do it before or after and i want to tip my hat to to caleb my researcher because he found an even more extreme attitude to contrast with france even more extreme than sweden and that's ethiopia where all disputes regarding the competence of the tribunal must be submitted to the local courts so in other words, arbitral tribunals lack the competence to determine their own competence. So no competence, competence in Ethiopia. Wow. Mm-hmm. You didn't know that. I didn't. It's because we t- tend to take it for granted. And the reason for that, once again, is this arbitration friendly. <laughs> I was thinking about saying that when you said France and then you said, because usually the African countries, the courts are quite active um, or in some of them. And I think, and so it just kind of like rang my bell. I was like, well, they're not arbitration friendly. But then I. Yeah, exactly. Then you know that. Snip my tongue off. The phrase bugs me. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think, unfortunately, uh, arbitration friendly might be the umbrella under which we reluctantly have to discuss competence, competence. Because as I hinted already, the key question is the balance between tribunals and courts. And if tribunals win, it's arbitration friendly. And if courts win, it's not. That's right. something we've already established. Um, and I think we discussed this, at least partly, when we talked about challenges as well. Exactly. Um, that domestic jurisdictions kind of, uh, they, they give away certain kinds of, of disputes when they allow for arbitration, disputes that would otherwise be in court. Um, and they only do so under certain restrictions. So arbitration is only allowed because states say it is allowed. Right. So the states have an interest in safeguarding that arbitral tribunals actually have jurisdiction as defined by this framework set up by the states when they give up jurisdiction to tribunals. So uh, if I if I were to uh, challenge the arbitration-friendly um, mantra once again, I think the, that courts have an interest in, in arbitral tribunals not, you know, running amok and and uh, starting to hear criminal and constitutional cases taking over things that ought to be in court really so uh, domestic courts really want to ensure that tribunals have jurisdiction but you can of course do this at the challenge stage uh, yeah always i think i can't think of a scenario where you can't go to the domestic court at the place of arbitration after the award has been rendered and argue that it was uh, the arbitration agreement was not valid or it was non-arbitrable and so on. Yeah, right? I mean, because then there's no tribunal in place to hear that. So you have, I mean, once the award is rendered, the tribunal takes off its tribunal hat. So you either initiate a new arbitration or take it to court. But then you're back. You're basically back to the beginning, which is what you said before that you could only raise this when there's an arbitration pending, because before it's it's fine to go to court. Yeah, yeah, but there are so many different 
solutions here. And I think if once again using Caleb's research and to to take this one step further and away from our arbitration friendly uh, doctrinal talk, he he dug up a case from his native Canada, which I think illustrates the the problem here. Maybe uh, more so than what what is typically the case in in the arbitration world when we talk about this. Is a recent Canadian case called Heller versus Uber, which has has been the subject of of commentary in in Canada at least. Uh, as you can hear from the case name, it involves Uber. Uh, so do you know about this? Uh, no, but I plan on suing them for making me wait so long these days. But I don't. I assume that's not uh, what the case was about. No, it's not. <laughs> uh, that would be Kotick versus Uber. But have, <laughs> have, have you looked at your uh, your contract with Uber? Um, no, no, I haven't. Because if you do, you might find that uh, you have agreed to arbitration. <laughs> So you have to sue them in arbitration, at least if your contract is uh, in Canada, because in Canada, Uber contracts with consumers or users or whatever we want to call them. I'm not implying that there's a legal definition of people who buy Uber's services. But if if they do so in Canada, at least uh, in this case, it was an arbitration clause included in the agreement and it referred to arbitration seated in the Netherlands under Dutch law with uh, fees. Presumably as well. It was an expensive procedure. Uh, not a problem for you now that you have a fancy big law job in <laughs> London. But I think it's like twenty thousand dollars or something Canadian dollars. So it's, That's it's not that much. That's not <laughs> a money. Uh, and uh, of course, then um, that was a problem. Uh, so an Uber driver, uh, not a consumer, but a driver, attempted to sue Uber for labor law viol- uh, violations. So the question here is, are Uber drivers employees or are they not? And uh, so we had this contract with the arbitration clause providing for arbitration in the Netherlands. And if the Uber drivers are employees, this contract is non-arbitrable in Canada, as in every other country apart from the underdeveloped United States you are not allowed to agree to arbitration with employees. Because it's a pure labor dispute and that's not arbitrable? Yes, exactly. But the Canadian court refused to hear the claim and referred the parties to arbitration, invoking competence competence. Love it. So they said it's not for us to to determine whether or not it's employees or whether or not this is arbitrable. It is for the tribunal. So they basically gave the case away to the arbitrators. Beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> of course, you're playing devil's advocate, as always. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But this is, I think, a, a, a good illustration of a potential problem of the negative part of the competence-competence doctrine, because you can uh, withdraw cases that some people would argue are better suited for court than for arbitration. Just to have a wholesale view of what competence-competence means, you mean? If you take such yeah. a big picture approach to be like, okay, well, anytime this has anything to do with arbitration, we're going to defer to arbitration. Yeah. And then yeah, is, and I, yeah, sure. is the tribunal vested with the question again, just to make it clear? So now they go to arbitration and then the arbitral tribunal will then decide on their own jurisdiction? Yeah, I guess so. And that has to be the case, assuming then yeah. that the the party, of course, raises this again. But I that's... Yeah. It's a reasonable assumption, I think, if you try to bring it to court and argue that there's no jurisdiction. 
because the court's determination is not that arbitral tribunal has jurisdiction. It's the arbitral tribunal is competent to decide on the jurisdiction. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Good distinction. It's uh, it doesn't have competence. It has competence. Competence. <laughs> <laughs> but this is of course a very strong take on negative competence. Competence. Uh, and once again, there is always the possibility of a court review after the tribunal then potentially has accepted the case. So even in this scenario, if the tribunal says, "Yeah, we do have jurisdiction," uh, we don't find that this is an employee. This is a contract like any other. The arbitration clause is valid. We we're gonna move on. Uh, if they then render an award, this uh, alleged Uber driver slash employee can take that award to the courts in Canada and say, "Now look, this was non-arbitrable. I'm an employee," and then the court can set it aside. Right. But the point is that the tribunal gets the first say because courts defer to them in their wish to be arbitration friendly. Right. Sad face. <laughs> I looked up something um, for my thesis when I was getting my master's on rest judicata, and the issue came up in who was to decide on matters of rest judicata, whether it should be the court or the tribunal, depending on who the who decided the first case, for example. So if the national court decided this case and then a second arbitration was be had begun and then there was an objection to res judicata based off the first case whether that decision would or that determination would go to the national court originally vested with the case or whether it should go to the tribunal um, the subsequent tribunal um, mm. and it was kind of has to do with that principle um, because it had to do with who was competent to decide on the competence of the um, the determination of res judicata, the effects of res judicata. Mm, but not to complicate this too much, but is a res judicata, an objection based on res judicata, really something that goes to jurisdiction? Isn't it more like an admissibility question or something that does not affect the tribunal's jurisdiction? Where are we? Potentially. Well, actually, there is no consensus on the principle of whether it's jurisdiction or admissibility. So I guess it'll depend on the jurisdiction. Or the admissibility. Or the, oh, yeah, no, the jurisdiction, right. The jurisdiction, the sovereign area jurisdiction. Oh, the jurisdiction, jurisdiction. The, ju the competence of the jurisdiction's competence to competently jurisdict the competence. So now we have officially determined it is called competence, competence. And that's pretty much it. I don't think any anything of, of substance we said is gonna it's gonna stick. But if if you want to have one takeaway, it's called competence, competence, and not competence, competence. Brian was wrong, and those of you who enjoy reading nineteenth-century public international law books, it's not called competence de la competence either. It's called competence, competence, <laughs> or competencia de la competencia. <laughs> Okay, it's the same in Swedish, basically. It's in German. <laughs> you were about to really go for it there. <laughs> I was hoping for a good joke. Uh, okay, let's let's move on instead and talk to Carita. She's more more fun. I'll just start by saying hello, Carita, and hello, Brian. How is Stockholm? Stockholm is beautiful as always, and Stockholm is warm. How much do you get to see though, locked in uh, a conference center? I never stay at the Grand, I always stay at the Diplomat, so I get the walk every time <laughs> I transfer myself here. 
very smart and thank you specifically Carita thank you Brian yes. for, for being patient and allowing me to call in but thank you Carita specifically for, for taking time and joining us to talk about the ICC of course and I think that your pod is a great innovation and I was not aware of its existence <laughs> you shouldn't say that on air you yeah. and say that you listen to everything uh, yes but I, I it seems to me everybody else is so it really talks volumes about me and not about the rest of the world. But now I'm in the know. Yeah, we will forgive you. In, in terms of substance, I thought that we would start by us telling you how we think the ICC operates, because it's naturally the, the biggest arbitration institution and the most international one. And we all in the business know about it, even if we haven't had the pleasure of having any ICC cases on our individual dockets. But I think many people don't really recognize the, the different nuances in, in who does what at the ICC, and I'm pretty sure that we're wrong. So, so bear with me for 30 seconds and I'll tell you what I think that the ICC is or how it operates. Sure. So you have the court, the ICC court, appointing arbitrators and scrutinizing draft awards, which I guess we will get back to and things of that nature. And the court consists of national committees or something similar to that, filled with arbitration lawyers from each country uh, and there's a lot of them which I would imagine uh, could create some problems if you want to have all of them in the same room and the president of the court is uh, Alexei Moore. Then we have the secretariat which runs the day-to-day operations, sort of the case management part of it and that's similar to many other secretariats of course at, at other arbitral institutions and finally we have the uh, Commission on Arbitration and ADR, which you, as of earlier this year, is the chair of. And that seems to be, to the outsider, uh, sort of the um, rule maker or the uh, um, think tank part of the operation that is not involved in the day-to-day running, but is working on developing the rules and best practice and other things. So that are those are the three main branches, it seems to me. How far off am I? Uh, you were uh, reasonably correct, but for for uh, one thing, and maybe I will start and I'll take matters in the same order as, as you presented them. When you talk about the court, the ICC court, which obviously, as you know, does not decide cases itself, but manages it, uh, the um, the day-to-day um, support and organ for the court is the secretariat that does the preparatory work and that is brought to the court regularly. And um, uh, I shall describe uh, later uh, a bit how that works. Uh, where I believe, at least I heard you saying something which was... Which was um, um, uh, uh, not entirely correct is that the court is is composed of physical individuals um, appointed to the court from each uh, member jurisdiction of the ICC. Uh, there are one uh, or two uh, for each jurisdiction, an individual which is... Um, appointed by the National Committee of the, um, uh, of the member country. You know, ICC is a, is a uh, 
federation, if you wish. Mm-hmm. Now, um, the court member, t- together with the alternate court member, um, are the members of the court who ultimately decide under the presidency of Alexis Moore um, things that that uh, uh, are in the court's competence, namely, as you as you point uh, as you pointed out, appointment of arbitrators, arbitrator fees, extension of deadlines and alike matters, that the cases are, are, are managed by the court. <clears throat> um, the preparatory work is performed by the Secretariat, which I believe together with its support staff numbers 80 people. And um, they prepare every matter that goes to the court for example, the scrutiny of the awards or the appointment of arbitrators, and there is a monthly plenary session of the court okay. to which uh, the members of the court travel uh, from all over, uh, as many as they can. But then, there, uh, because of the great number of cases, it's not possible to take all uh, cases uh, in the plenary. To the plenary go the ones that are uh, of a certain nature, which uh, um, are delicate or which create important precedent. Uh, otherwise, there is something that's called comité restreint, um, which is a delegation of power from the court to a weekly uh, committee where one of the vice chairs of the president um, is chairing and where uh, two other members of the court are present and which go through scrutinize awards or partial awards uh, in matters that do not need to go to the plenary. So there is... May I interject a question there? Yes. Does that mean that these court members have to be physically in Paris for these weekly meetings? And if so, uh, does that mean that uh, uh, court members who are uh, more easily in Paris are more uh, frequently taking Probably part in the decision making? That's, that's a good question. I cannot say uh, whether, um, whether those who are in Paris or in the vicinity of Paris are more frequently on the Comité Restreint, it would seem logical. I personally quite often went to them. Um, um, when it comes to um, whether or not you can be on the screen, I would say that uh, I don't know if I've seen in a Comité Restreint, but I, I do think that it is entirely possible what I have seen many times at the court meetings is that the case managers uh, or those who present cases to the court, which is always a court member, that they appear on a screen. For example, if the, if the court member who is making the report for a certain case, for example, whether to approve um, an award, um, whether he or she uh, is, let's say, in Rio de Janeiro, 
uh, he or she often comes on the screen and also for example if the case was filed in uh, in Sao Paulo or in New York often the case manager uh, who is an officer of the ICC the case manager who is part of the secretariat often comes on the screen and and uh, appears from Hong Kong or or from New York and that I think is more often the case than not. Finally, I would also say that uh, uh, to, to explain what I just said, after the, um, the Secretariat has prepared for scrutinized an award uh, and made its comments and list and, and uh, uh, indicated, uh, you know, a precedent to the court, it's very well prepared normally. One member of the court uh, gets to do a report uh, to the plenary, uh, a written report and explain it why he or she uh, agrees or disagrees with the secretariat and, and if it has any additional comments, whether to approve, approve with corrections or disapprove an award. So yeah, I wanted to ask about uh, something that you touched upon when you said initially that the, the ICC, neither the court nor the uh, secretariat makes any decisions, they administer disputes, but the way you describe the, the court report and uh, the work with the scrutiny of the awards now, I would imagine it also uh, creates sort of a, a problems uh, with, with balancing the not making decision part when you're also tasked with looking at ICC previous precedent and so on and uh, trying to improve the award without going into the merits. Is that something that, that uh, is part of the discussion at the ICC? Yes, I, I think that, that I am clear when I say that, uh, that uh, when I say that the ICC doesn't take decisions, I say that it does not act as an arbitrator in the case, it does not resolve the cases. Um, when it comes to, for example, precedent and policy, it would normally be in administrative respects, uh, as for example in challenges, you know, that there is yeah. a, a precedent in challenges, uh, fee levels, you know, uh, things like this, and also whether, uh, you know, counting of timelines, um, for example, timeline for challenges, so that the president would be uh, in the administrative function. It is absolutely uh, clear, I think, and I think it's, it's clear to all court members that um, um, you do not interfere with the substantive decision-making of the arbitral tribunal that has been put in place, but it can happen that there are suggestions that maybe you wish to, you know, review some part. And I think that that works very well. To, to me, I don't think that the court sort of interferes more than, and I say this as someone who has um, sat as an arbitrator uh, under the uh, ICC rules. Um, mainly before my court appointment, but, but also since, is that 
I think that it is extremely useful to the tribunal to get ideas and say, hey, wait a minute, there, there appears to be a figure missing or uh, an illogical cross-reference. That is extraordinarily helpful, I think. Mm-hmm. And you said it's prepared by the Secretariat and then it goes likely to, I mean, it's not going to It goes to a court member who has agreed to, to, review that. To, to review it, who then makes a report and say, hypothetically, <laughs> I agree with the Secretariat's comment. I have an additional one. Is it circulated before? Uh, yes. So everyone it, has a it chance. It is to, el- an okay. electronic database. Yes. Okay. And I was, there can be quite a lot of work involved in being on the ICC court. Yeah. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Um, uh, we now have uh, a member um, and um, an associate member from Finland, uh, or a deputy member. When I was a court member, I was uh, the only court member. And yes, I must say uh, that it is uh, a lot of work, but it's extremely educational. And the process certainly grows on you. Yeah. <laughs> what did you, are you saying, are you think that this was a, a marketing pitch? <laughs> no, there was no insinuation in, in, my, in my question. I just now realized that maybe there were more work involved than I would have thought, because it seems like then you, you would have to get, really get into the, yes. to the details of a case on a, uh, on a pretty regular basis as well. It's not something yes. that you do. Yes, exactly. And it is not, I can tell you one thing, it is certainly not an honorary position. <laughs> yeah. If you go there and if you want to handle your, your appointment uh, responsibly, uh, it certainly involves a lot of work. And then also I would say that then there is an annual working session of the court where it's officers, it's the, um, the president of the court, Alexi Moore, the secretary general, Alex Fess, as a deputy, Anna Seraimura, and the managing um, counsel from the secretariat all you know, present latest developments and, and things. So it's also very, very informative and educational. Then what about the, uh, the the work that you are now doing when you're no longer on the court, but rather chairing the the commission? Yeah. What it, it, I, I described it as a think tank and a rulemaking body. Is that an accurate description? Uh, it is. I would say that, that uh, I'll try to to be reasonably brief, I think it is most certainly a think tank. It is also a rulemaking body, but as it comes to the rules for arbitration, that is done together with the court. That is to say very often now, uh, the certain initiatives also come from the president of the court and his vice presidents, which is called Le Bureau, so the, um, uh, the changes are, um, uh, to rules are uh, made with the commission in cooperation with the court. Then the other ADR rules, the, um, the, well, the ADR rules and, and, and expertise rules, those are also drafted by the commission. And then, as you may know, the the commission uh, is a think tank, I think, 
both to take the temperature of the um, uh, arbitral environment and to see what aspects of arbitration uh, should be studied and examined. Um, uh, and then, of course, as you know, the members of the Commission are, are uh, outstanding profi uh, uh, professionals from their respective jurisdictions, so, so you often get the core group of, of expertise, and also sometimes outside of the Commission, to be in these working groups. You may recall, and I will quote projects that were done under my predecessor, there was a report on saving cost and time, mm -hmm. which was a comparative report, which I think, I mean, it is still timely. I mean, it, there's still a need to, uh, to revisit these questions. And obviously, it's always easier to address a question if there is some product in front of you and not, not just talk generally. A very specific product was uh, the, uh, how um, um, to solve a banking and, and financial dispute disputes in arbitration was produced. Now um, we have a task force on climate change, uh, a report on emergency arbitrations, um, one on the reliability of the human memory for purposes of reliability of, um, of oral testimony. Which we just talked about we, at the which conference. We just, which, which we <laughs> just, just talked you know, about, yeah. yes, at this conference. Um, how you actually, people in good faith may remember the wrong things because it has been discussed so much. And then we have a newly established task force. I believe that is also. Um, public information already on on how to tackle corruption in uh, international arbitration and um, this there's a lot of uh, of voluntary work done by, by individuals in all these working groups where again it functions in the manner that the national committees are called to nominate members who can themselves also express interest, I want to be on this task force or on that. And then also, uh, I, by virtue of my office, can also appoint directly people who would be critical for a certain domain area, for example, when it comes to climate change, right. who are not members of the Commission. And uh, uh, I believe that the reports that are published by the ICC are read and are bringing the debate uh, forward uh, in, in international arbitration. So that is what the Commission does, um, I would say, in parallel uh, to the court. With the end being just marketing the ICC's strengths or for the end to implement it into the day-to-day -day of administering disputes, uh, what's... Um, let me see, what did you ask into market? Yeah, I mean, what's the purpose? Why do we have these task force? Well, that is a very good question. Actually, what I did in preparing for this, 
I went to look in some governance material and uh, uh, I thought that, uh, I, I saw that there was, as a sort of third item, there was the, the think tanking, there was the rule making and then there was the marketing. And of course, uh, the commission has been there, I, I believe, since already uh, the well, the ICC was founded in 23. Mm -hmm. The ICC, I went to my first commission meeting, I think in, at the end of seven, the 70s. So, I mean, it's wow. been, but I don't, I don't think it has been established as a marketing organization, though it's absolutely clear that that is de facto what it, right. what it is. Uh, it functions that way. But what I would rather say, and, and, um, and I truly believe in saying this, uh, it seems to me also, um, and this can also be seen as marketing, but I think that since you mentioned that it is maybe the, the leading arbitral institution in the world, I also think that it should function as a thought leader. Yeah. I mean, for real. Absolutely. Of course, if it promotes itself in, in, in that context, yes, of course. But I do think that there is also a certain responsibility to be ahead of the bus. Exactly. And to alert that these are things that... Push the needle forward. But yeah. yes, yes, That's I think so. Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like in both the Commission and the Court, these national committees play an important role in, in designating who, who is on these bodies that of course poses the question who, who is on the national committee or who, who are the national committees? Yes, the national committees, um, there, there is a local, uh, at least in, in my own country, the local organization of the ICC is headed by top executives and enlisted companies. But then there is an, uh, an arbitration group, a, a local arbitration group, uh, which is headed normally by the uh, maybe the the most distinguished arbitral practitioner in the jurisdiction. I cannot talk for all these uh, jurisdictions. I think there are more than ninety uh, national committees, so I don't know them all. But I would say basically the local ICC organization designates and it develops organically. Um, to uh, uh, to see to it that the local arbitration commission in each jurisdiction is composed by renowned and recognized arbitration practitioners and they also now are increasingly establishing nomination committees for to propose uh, candidates for appointments by the ICC uh, where a party has not appointed an arbitrator or where according to the ICC rules the appointment should be made by the court so sometimes it's the president who appoints directly but then national committees get inquiries uh, to appoint uh, or suggest a candidate and then there is a nomination committee locally who knows the market mm -hmm. and it now happens according to a certain protocol and as we all know in all organizations not only the ICC uh, things get increasingly uh, protocol based when how these 
things are are implemented in practice. Absolutely. Joel, do you have a last question for us? I have a, a what could be construed as a, as a tough question, although it's not. That's a good one to end on. <laughs> a, t- a tough question, so I to take some of my water now yeah. and, <laughs> and do like witnesses do. Count to ten before you answer. <laughs> That's right. Brace for impact, Kaito. Uh, because that, it, it's not something I prepared. I was just thinking of it as, as you were talking, that the ICC, uh, it's, it's such a business-minded organization, uh, both with the national committees and the, the structure of, of the organization. It is part of a chamber of commerce, after all. At the same time, we talk a lot about investment treaty arbitration on the podcast, and you have so many uh, treaty-based cases and other cases where states are involved uh, in different ways. And compared to, for example, ICSID, where the states are sort of the members of the institution and all the rule changes and everything, they have to go through the states uh, in order to be approved. That doesn't seem to be the case at the at the ICC. Uh, is there a tension here between sort of the business-like nature of the organization and the more, should we say, public international law-related disputes that you have on the ICC docket? You know... Um... I often don't like when people answer my questions by saying it was a good question. I think it's a relevant question. I have thought around it. I I haven't really thought about it in these terms. I think I I would need, if you ever make a pod with, uh, with the president of the court, to step up the question. But I can say at least, at least this. The ICC rules, as you know, they have particular um, features when it comes to investment arbitration. And uh, I believe they are are treated with particular checks and balances warranted for by the fact that a state uh, is a party. Good, good answer. And we we were about to meet Alexi Mu in in Sydney, but... We, we, we had him scheduled and then we missed okay. Ika yes. in Sydney. But he said he would be on later, so we should definitely That's very good. You can that. ask the tough question to him. <laughs> he's, a, he's, 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 uh, he's a very good object of the interview, so, so I'm happy to hear that. We were going to talk to him a lot about publication of awards. That was going to be something we were going okay. to ask him about yeah. because that is one of the yeah. things he's really yeah. pioneering. Yeah. He's pioneering in many areas. Yes, yeah. yes. That must be in a dynamic environment over there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's try to get him back. But for now, I think we should thank you, Karita, for, for being with us and, and joining the podcast. Well, thank you very much for thinking of me. And um, I'm very happy to have spoken to you. Uh, I hope your ears aren't red. I know I've spoken a lot. But, uh... <laughs> it was great. Thank you so much. Thank you. For the third Happy Fun Time segment, we will be talking about interviews, which is only fun, either when you're like Joel and have never had one, or like me and have just finished the entire process. Yeah, and also in theory, when you're like thinking of future potential interviews, or if you're in law school, yes. where it's basically a skill that you're trying to develop. And it really does become a skill. After you go through a couple of interviews, you kind of know the right way to answer a question, you know how to like parlay it into other elements of your CV that you want to highlight. You really get into this um, 
this game on how to how to perform correctly and appropriately in an interview. You're good at this now, I take it, since you got a job? I had to brush off, dust off the cobwebs, but I'll tell you, I mean, I remember when I interviewed for Mannheimer and they asked if I was a big picture or detail-oriented person, and I said, well, I'm pretty, I really like the big picture, and they're like, well, you know, being a junior associate is detail-oriented, and I was like, that too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so you kind of you have to, like, <laughs> prepare yourself for these type of questions. Oh, yeah, that, I think I told you this. Maybe you, you forgot, but it's good to take it up now again. I also interviewed for, for Mannheimer. It's one of the few interviews I ever had, and it's also a job I obviously didn't get. Uh, when I get the, a similar question, they ask me like, what, uh, "What I'm not so good at," and I said, "I'm not not noggrann, which is Swedish right. for diligent or not so good with details, basically." Mm-hmm. And then they said, "Okay, but that's the only thing exactly that matters." You need to work. <laughs> but you still got the job. No, I didn't get it. Oh. They even told me like, "Yo, the perfect profile. We would have wanted it, but the only thing we're looking for in junior associates is is that you're uh, detail oriented and." <laughs> And diligent, and you said you weren't, and I, and that's, uh, I was fine with that because I wasn't. I'm still not. I'm better now after like seven years of working, but still not that good with with details. So it was probably for the best. I wouldn't have been a very good junior associate. So that's like my only experience really of job interview is when I told the truth, and it it prevented me from getting the job, and then I stopped doing interviews. <laughs> You're like, I'm never doing this again. I'm turning into academia, and no one should yeah. ever talk to me. I'm going to a cabin in the woods. <laughs> Um, well, but, I mean, that kind of leads me into something that I, surprised me when I interviewed at Mannheimer was that they asked me my three strengths and weaknesses. And they said, they said it in the, in the framing of if someone were to describe your strengths, if a friend of yours would describe your strengths, what would they be? And then I literally looked at this woman like she was crazy. And I was like, I can't believe people still ask this question. Oh, that's such a cliche. That's exactly yeah. the way you make fun of job interviews exactly and then you never prepare them because like they're never going to ask that and then you you i was i was caught off guard and then you know the typical answer that you're never supposed to give is that i'm a perfectionist because it's just (laughs) everyone just rolls their eyes at you uh loudly i work too much i love my job too much (laughs) i have no threshold for pain it's like (laughs) what uh so i mean but that is something that i think um, depends on the culture that you're of the market you're entering into. So if you know, I can compare the Swedish market to the London market to the U.S. market. Um, they're very, very different. And being interviewed by a Swede versus an American versus a uh, an a Brit is is also different in and of itself. Oh, please tell me more. I love this. And that you... <laughs> when we when we generalize about cultural <laughs> expressions. Well, I'll tell you that in the U.S., um, I've had interviews where we haven't even discussed my CV. That it's just been a personality fit because if you've gotten to the interview process, you've made it, and the interview mm-hmm. process is just for the fit. So, um, not I'm not saying that this is the same for higher um, legal jobs, but for like entry level legal jobs, and also for other types of jobs that I've interviewed in the U.S. Um, it's let it's kind of like okay, well, we wouldn't even give you an interview if we didn't like your profile. So there's no reason for us to ask you generic questions on your profile unless there's a gap in your resume that we need ex- explanations for or something like that. Mm. In which case, they'll ask you to provide it anyway. Mm. Um, in the Swedish context, it is um, it's so much about grades in Sweden. I mean, I only applied to Mannheimer, but it's very much like, do you fit the formula? Yes. Okay, then you come in here. And then it's also a personality fit, but the questions are as you know very regimented and equal to everyone who applies. And I think that's just to make it fair 
for all all applicants. Yes, Um, welcome to socialism. Exactly. (laughs) Um, Which I thought was, um, is good. And then in the UK, it's completely different because it's just like another level. It's multiple rounds. Um, And then one thing that I want to get into you with you and whether you think it's a good idea is that now people are asking for written assessments. Um, Because you cannot provide a writing sample because most of your work is confidential, Mm. they ask you to respond to a mock problem within a specified period of time, and then you send it back, and then that gets evaluated as your second or third round. Um, There are talks in some Swedish firms to start implementing that because writing is a fundamental part of what we do, um, and you can't tell that by someone who can just speak well in an interview. Do you think that's a good... I think it's an amazing. I think that that makes it so much easier to evaluate the merits of of the applicant as opposed to all the other much more blunt instruments that you have. I mean, it's it's part of a bigger picture, I guess. You still need the grades and the personality assessments and everything like that. That's the thing. It it just puts a whole nother burden on the applicant. I mean, they now have to block twenty four to seventy two hours, which they'll inevitably stay up all night to finish their assessments. And then they may not even get the job. Hmm. It's or, tough. Or, the, or they do, and they, they're they paid so well that they never have to worry about money again. Woo-hoo, <laughs> right, woo-hoo. Right, right. Try um, submitting a doctoral project. That's more than a 24-hour block you have to reserve in order to prepare for the for the job. You have to spend six months. And to, you don't to prepare even... for your defending? Your... No, just to uh, to be accepted in the first place, ah. to submit the, the proposal. You have to basically write a 15-page abstract of a, of a monograph. Right. That works. But that's a different story. Yeah, course. but that's interesting. Kind of job. That is interesting. Um, like, there's just no time, right? We don't have... There's no time in, in the private international law sphere. Yeah, true, yeah, I know, yeah, I mean, of course, I, I see your point as well, <laughs> that if you're applying for, for multiple jobs while you're you're performing another job, if you're moving laterally as opposed to just coming from law school, yeah. having having that kind of like assessment center <laughs> with days and days of, of different tasks for right. each job you apply to, of course, it, it, it becomes burdensome for the individual at some point. So I have gotten a couple of... Um, cover letters from people applying to Mannheimer that are, you know, international lawyers that um, have seen that I have entered the Swedish market. And so they wanted to do the same thing. So they've sent me cover letters and their CVs. And, and I have not interviewed them, but I can, t- I can say that there's um, a, a tip in applying to places is definitely, and this is kind of for people who have applied for multiple jobs, know this, to kind of figure out what the firm is doing. Um, because at after you graduate law school, you need to start knowing what law firms are doing and how your experience can contribute to the firm's case profile. Um, And that can be as general as whether they do more commercial or they do more investment cases, but also the specific cases themselves, whether you're going to focus on a specific region or whether you're going to focus on a specific subject matter, um, and that you need to kind of tailor that in your interview when you're interviewing with that specific person. What are the cases that they have worked on and how are you going to tie in your experience with what they have worked on? So at the end of the interview, they're just talking about their cases and you're mm. just sitting there smiling, waiting for your <laughs> offer letter. <laughs> but it's harder than you think. So, you know, how are you finding these things? Well, plug the, the IA reporter is great. You can search by firm name. And you can find out all the cases that have hits based on that firm name. 
or that person that you'll be interviewing with. You can go on the ICSID's websites where you can search based off party representative, claim it or respondent, and type in the firm name. These are all investment cases, though. Yeah, it's not as yeah, easy yeah. if it's a primarily a commercial firm. Of course, and that's always hard. And you can go by the profile on their website, but then you're, everyone's going to be listing the same cases, so you just absolutely need to do some digging. Um, or talk to other people who have worked with them. Or... Yeah, exactly. What about that? What about approaching current other associates, yay or nay, to ask them about the firm or what to think about and how to approach an interview? So I ha I did that, um, but I, it depends on the seniority. Uh, if you're asking someone very junior, I think it's a bit better because then you're just asking about the culture of the office and maybe um, some interesting cases that they've worked on. But I don't think it's kosher to cold call senior people on the team to ask for coffee um, when you intend on applying. I don't know. Mm. I, th I think mm. it, I think it um, really muddles the, the recruitment process. But I tend to defer on, you know, the side of decorum versus, you know, the aggressive recruiting. That's the exact opposite. Of <laughs> The Brian I know. <laughs> okay, maybe I'm lying a little bit. <laughs> you're, you're moving to London now. You're just switching to like Downton Abbey manners in your head. <laughs> right. <laughs> a lady in waiting should never <laughs> receive coffee before midnight with a senior associate at a law firm. <laughs> um, I, I have another question for you that, that might be sensitive depending on where you take your answer. And that uh -huh. has to do with the lawyer versus HR person on the other side yeah. of the table when you're interviewing. Because the, the other... Apart from the Mannheim job that I didn't get when I was 24, I did, of course, all the summer associate jobs. And then you do basically the exact same interview mm -hmm. with nine different firms and hope that you know, one piece of spaghetti that you throw on the wall is going to stick and so that you get one of the summer jobs. And they all looked exactly the same. And that was because they were all conducted by HR people because, I, you know, the summer associates are not that important, at least not in Sweden. Mm -hmm. So it, they don't waste partner time on interviewing and evaluating 19 year olds who come in for the summer basically <laughs> but I, I think they do for for associates and of course for lateral hires as well but i've never seemed to figured out how like the hr people where they're all they have these instruments and tests and they of course they're, they're educated for this particular purpose and recruiting people and assessing candidates how they sort of uh, balance against the lawyers and the people who actually own the firm and yeah. what they want and who they want to hire what what is the uh, situation here? How do they relate to each other? That is um, that's a good question because it depends on each firm. Each firm has a different dynamic with their HR, um, and also with their managing partners. So at Mannheimer, the HR person is kind of like the main filter. I don't think that's. Um, I mean, we kind of talk about that quite openly. Even when I get um, requests from people applying, I say I ha I literally have no say in this. You have to go through HR. So, th so they're kind of the, and so that's right. Like especially here, that's someone who kind of makes the decisions, and they interview you, which I think is um, atypical. And um, they do a great job. I mean, they find really good personalities to work here. But in other firms, you don't see the HR person until you're figuring out how to book your flight to go visit the office. Um, that's where the HR person comes in, and HR does more like management of the people once they're in. Um, because some firms see that the competence of the interviewee will only be decided by someone who is also in that field. Um, oh, yeah. And granted, HR people do kind of learn the subject matter of what they're HRing, but um, but I don't think that that's common. I never met that in the UK, um, and that definitely doesn't happen in the US. Um, HR is more like 
the background support system for making sure that there's talent development and finding people. But yeah, but, but the process is driven by and ultimately determined exactly. by the, your colleagues, essentially the people you'll be in the trenches with exactly on, on the cases. Okay. And then at that point, I think it's the same between Sweden and other jurisdictions, which is you start with kind of a more junior associate and maybe you get a senior associate and then at the, your final round will be with the partners. Um, How many rounds are there? It sounds like an Olympic. <laughs> that, that can depend. It's never one. I'll tell you that. <laughs> it's never one. But um, I have been in as many as five. So, um, oh my God! And I've okay. been in I, one I with five people. That maybe so. there was one that you could be so amazing that you would ace it on the first interview, and that would well, be now it. Now you're that... saying I'm not amazing. <laughs> uh, no, but I think depending on the size of the firm, they might toss you around, especially if they're trying to figure out which office you're going to be a good fit for. Um, it's so dependent on what the needs are of that firm and how you got into the door in the first place. If it is a general like streamlined recruitment process of a job that you found online, it's going to be maybe quicker and an easier thing. If you met someone at a conference that wants to follow up with you, um, they're going to have to go through the right people, talk to the managing partner, make sure that there's a need. What if the office you're applying to is not the main office, but a remote office? Well, then they're going to definitely have to go through a couple hoops. You may need to Skype call with the main office um, mm. to make sure that... These are problems that are uh, particular to arbitration almost, or I guess maybe some M&A groups as well, that you, you, you can choose between different firms right. or different offices within the same firm. Which is not exactly. typically the case, and when if if your practice is more domestically oriented. So we have talked about being interviewed, but um, what we had we went through a mini interview process with our research applicants. Um, how did you find that process sitting on the other side of the table? We never actually interviewed them, did we? we no, just we didn't. Let them do research tasks, and then we evaluated those, and then we talked to the people who got the job. Once, but, once it was fair complete. Right. But even that like written, so we gave them some topics to answer and then we kind of reviewed their written assessments. And I thought it it was, it's difficult. I think at this level, yeah. you're splitting hairs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When that, I used to uh, be uh, the editor of a law journal when I was in law school for a couple of years. And towards the end, I was so senior that we also, you know, recruited more junior people. And then we actually, we devised sort of a, a test that was more personality oriented because as you say, once you're at that stage, it doesn't matter. It's the same as with our researchers or with most associates in law firms that once you're in sort of the interview room, you've already gone through all the hoops in terms of formalities and grades and background and whatnot. Mm -hmm. So we did a personality thing. I think this is not something that is unique to, to us by any means, but the, we call this something like the, the wine test or, you know, we had a bunch of Do you of want to have a beer with the guy? Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, shit, yeah, it's back to presidential elections again. <laughs> like, and there were, we had a bunch, of, I can't remember now, we had similar questions like that. Like, would you enjoy this uh, situation with this particular person? Would you be comfortable doing this? And they were all just personality-based and, like, social issues rather than yeah. work work issues. And that is, that obviously, that doesn't matter for our researchers that much because we won't be meeting them, unfortunately that often at least physically. But I think that if I were to interview people more, if I had my own firm or uh, or had to employ people, that would be the crucial part, just the personality 
yeah. assessment. I, when I was thinking about when I was interviewing is questions that I would, that I had prepared for that I was never asked was what's a, an interesting topic in arbitration that is happening now that you want to talk about? Uh, because then it shows a thirst for the field. It allows them to speak on something that they have not worked on. Um, and it allows them to kind of think, have a kind of a forward thinking approach to mm, the arbitration mm. aspect. And I kind of prepared that uh, thinking that you just said, be... listen to the arbitration station. Yeah, that, that did week. come up. Well, actually, we can talk about that for a second. I that came up in almost every interview um, in a positive way. And um, I think what it showed is that it was this kind of thinking out of the box entrepreneurial spirit, but still in a substantive way. Um, do I need to toot my own award? <laughs> but basically, it was just it was something new on the resume. And this is exactly what you're talking about with the wine test is it's like differentiate yourself from the rest of the masses in some way um, that is relevant and substantive. And I think it will be. And that's why people write articles, because that's something that not every you're not everyone's writing the same yeah, article. That's right. Oh, I don't want this to turn into uh, too self-helpy. Should we <laughs> should we close the books? <laughs> yeah. I, um, in the end, uh, wear good deodorant and an undershirt. <laughs> is that, is that less self-helping? <laughs> yeah, that's more my, my general level of advice. <laughs> Go early no. so you're not sweating. Yeah, exactly. No, or... no racist slurs. <laughs> <laughs> yes, please. And you should be fine. <laughs> Joel has obviously never interviewed. All right. Well, good luck in your next interview. Let us know how it goes at uh, the arbitration station, at the ARB station on Twitter and arbitrationstation at gmail.com. Thank you to Callum Agnew for his support. And if you want to help support us anymore, go to indiegogo.com and search for the arbitration station and give us some cash before it closes. Yeah, that's right. And next time in London, hopefully, if we manage to make our schedules work. See you there, Joel. Bye.